My name is Chris. If you don't know me, uh, I'm the care pastor here at Ascent, and super excited uh, for us all to be here together today to continue into week two of our series called Mind Games, talking specifically about a couple verses in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12. Mo got us started last week um, and got to talk to I, I, one of my core groups. We just discussed the sermon, and it was like one of the best conversations that we've had in a really long time. And so I'm excited to kind of add on to that because we're talking about the mind, our brains, and it is an incredibly powerful thing, but it can also be a bit tricky at times. Here's proof. You ready? What color is this paper? Say it. What color is this paper? Yeah. What color are clouds? Say it. What color are wedding dresses? What do cows drink? Water. Yeah, boom, you just got mind gamed. Huh? So one of the most powerful things about the human mind is its ability to find patterns, to find repeated things, and then predict what's going to come ahead. It helps us be dramatically more efficient. We can do way more things because of it. Our brain learns to travel a certain way, and then it will run ahead of us to get down there. Every day, we have like millions of different inputs that come into us, right? Probably billions, I don't know, and sure. You know, sometimes you read like a scientific article, and they're like, billions of inputs, and you're like, did you count? No, right? Lots. We touch things, we feel things, we see things, we taste things. All of this comes in, and our brain is able to synthesize all of that and then predict how should we move forward, and it's this incredibly, incredibly amazing, powerful thing. But sometimes our mind learns to repeat thoughts, behaviors, patterns that ultimately are not very helpful, where we can get stuck, we can fall in a rut and continue doing things that ultimately they're not helping us, and in fact, we end up hurting ourselves. So today, what I want to talk about is how our faith can help us break out of some of those patterns. And so we begin by taking a look at what the Bible has to say. And so we start today, uh, as we actually did last week, uh, with Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This is what it says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so I want to talk today specifically about this idea of renewing our mind. Because I brought uh, a prop today in this little bag. Let's see, I don't want to... I don't want to mess up my notes here. So we're going to put these down for a second. Um, so in this bag is some journals that I've been keeping for many years. Lots of them. A lot of journals, right? And um, before any of you get too excited and think, wow, what a dogged uh, commitment to journaling Chris has, uh, it's mostly to-do lists, meeting notes, and vague ramblings as I prepared for sermons. But there is the occasional actual journal entry in here. There's one. Oh, yeah, this one. This one's from high school. There is some angsty high school poetry in this composition notebook that y'all aren't ready for. So we're going to leave it closed today. Uh, some good, good stuff in here. But there's this funny thing about all these journals. For years, I've been writing in them. And I spent some time this week reading back through some of these. 
and I started to notice some patterns, some themes, some repeated actions and behaviors, and it can get to the point where it feels like the same problems that I was writing about years and years ago, I'm still writing about today. Which for me brings up this question, why do certain things linger? Why do certain things continue to recur in my life? The Bible said to renew my mind, but when I read all these old journals, it can feel like I'm not renewing anything. This was especially apparent to me uh, recently. So every year, I try to get together with a group of guys. They're some of my oldest and closest friends. I brought a picture. You can toss that up there um, in a moment. Okay, so here's, these are friends like, these are like my dearest heart, soul friends. Let me introduce them to you. So starting on the left, that's my friend Elliot. Elliot and I uh, started playing soccer together and against one another in early elementary school. Um, he's a pastor at a church down in Dallas now. Um, we grew up together. He went to college about 20 minutes away from me, so we didn't go to the same college, but his was on the way home, and so I'd always pick Elliot up, and we'd ride home together. And never once did he chip in for gas, and I found out, literally like three years ago, I had a hatchback at that time. He would always be in the backseat, because our friend Matt, who we'll get to in a minute, would be um, in the car too, and I picked him up first. He would be going through my laundry and taking the stuff he liked. I didn't even know this. I found that out like at the first one of our guys' weekends. Uh, so that's Elliot, great dude. Um, next to him is me. Uh, the guy in the middle, that's Joe. We all met Joe in college. He's originally from Virginia. He's a vice president of consulting for um, a software firm that works on government contracts. I have no idea what he does. Um, but Joe and I were roommates after college for a couple years. He and I, and actually um, the other four guys, we all performed together in a professional improvisational comedy group uh, way back in the day. Um, he was the first of us to like get a real job, get married, buy a house, have kids. Um, so he has the oldest kid and the youngest kid, uh, which I don't get. But anyways, uh, next to him, that's Andrew. Andrew I met in middle school when he came to our school. Um, he and I were really, really close friends then. Then we were roommates first year of college, and then we had to take a two-year sabbatical from friendship because we didn't understand how to be roommates our first year in college. Uh, but we picked that back up senior year, going strong then. He is the senior pastor of a church in Seaside, Florida. Um, and then on the end, that's my buddy Matt. Matt and I met on the first day of first grade. He is my oldest and closest friends. We've been friends for 35 years. Um, he was, so we met in first grade. In third grade, he moved into my neighborhood. And so we spent all kinds of time together because of that. Uh, he went to college uh, at a different school, but about five minutes away. So I saw a lot of him in college. He was my high school debate partner. He was my seminary roommate. And he now works as a pastor at the church that I worked at previous to coming here. So in this group, four of us are pastors. Four of us were an improvisational group. Uh, comedy group together. Three of us grew up playing soccer together, but all five of us have become the best of friends. And we try to get together uh, once a year at least, um, and we've been doing that for the last few years, right? And it happened because I got jealous. Because my wife, who's better than me at most things, uh, it felt like she was always away on a girl's weekend, and I'd sit at home and pout and be like, I want to go on a guy's weekend, how come I don't even get to do that, right? And then I realized, oh, it's because they plan them and we don't. So I started planning them, uh, and so we're four years in. It is one of my favorite 
weekends of any year is when I get to get together with those guys. And when we're together, it's a lot of what you would expect. We eat so much red meat. It is the best. Like, we all walk away a little gouty. You know, we, we, we stay up late. We sleep in late, which at this stage in our life means seven, right? Like, we really suck the marrow out of life. There's so much laughing, so much reminiscing. It is the absolute best. But there are a couple things that happen on our weekends together that maybe you wouldn't suggest uh, or you wouldn't suspect. When we, uh, when we get into town, wherever we are, um, Matt and Joe, they really love to cook, and so they have always created a shopping list. We stop at a grocery store, divide it into five parts, and we all go our separate ways. This year, I kid you not, my shopping list was headlined by Miralax, Pepto-Bismol, and Tums, right? Uh, <laughs> turns out all that red meat, uh, we, we can't process the way we once did. Um, but the other thing you might not expect when a group of guys who've known each other that long get together is what really the main event of our weekend is. Because we each take turns sharing really, really deeply and specifically about everything that's going on in our life and giving a full update over the past year. And to make sure that no stone goes unturned, we've established seven categories that every guy must talk about in their share time. And I put them on a slide, here's they are, right? We check in and say, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing at your job? How's work going? How are you doing in your marriage? How are you doing as a parent? How are you doing with friendships? It's, you know what's, what's shocking is that like, when I was younger and you'd put that up there, I'd have been like, that's weird. But I think everybody who's my age or older knows how hard figuring out friendships as adults can be. How are you doing physically, right? Uh, the, the Miralax notwithstanding, everybody in that picture turns 40 this year, and our bodies don't work the way they used to. Like, there's actually a lot more to share on that one uh, than there was four years ago. And then we all check in about how we're doing financially. That's the one that, uh, when I tell people we do this, they're always like, what? You talk about that? But here's the thing. One of the most powerful influences in your life is your relationship to money. If there's not enough or there's too much, right, it is controlling. And we all need, I need at least, a group of my most trusted long-term friends with whom I can share absolutely vulnerably and receive feedback, input, encouragement. And so we do. We talk about all of those things together. Then after a guy's had his share time, it always takes over an hour. Everybody, um, oh, I should say, during your share time, nobody's allowed to offer commentary or advice. You can ask questions for clarification or to probe a little bit deeper, but there is no, you do not get to provide commentary on people's share time. At the end of it, we all gather around and we lay hands on our friend and we pray. We each take turns and we each have the opportunity to be prayed for by four of the people who know us the best and care about us the most in this world. And it's the best. And then we do one more thing. And this one just kind of happened organically the first year that we did it. It wasn't part of the plan. On the final day, we sit back down and we each receive challenges from our friends. They each speak into things that they've seen like bubbling up as we've shared and say, I think you need to lean into this this year. You need to work on that. Um, which might, maybe sounds intimidating, but to have the people who know you best and who care about you the most 
offer real encouragement and feedback into how to improve. And then we, we don't, we're not done talking for a year, right? We check in throughout the year and continue with that. This has been, been one of the most life-giving and amazing parts of my life. And it was last weekend, right? So that, that picture that I put up, that's in Santa Cruz, California. That's where we went. It's right in front of the, um, the surf school where we all uh, were able to rent boards and wetsuits and, and do a surf lesson together. It was super fun. Watch a bunch of 40-year-olds out there paddling around trying to figure things out. Um, so I just got back. I got back about 11 p.m. last Sunday night. And there was this fascinating thing that came up for me, is that after my share time, I kind of shared everything that I had to say, and, and one of my friends, Matt, he was the guy on the far right in the picture, he was taking notes, and he started flipping back, and he realized he was using the same journal, the same notebook that he had used last year. He said, do you want to know what you were asking for and struggling with a year ago? And here's what was, was so startling, is that everything I was really hoping for, desperate for, needing, has happened. All of those things have kind of come true, like, like strikingly, oddly, specifically so. You know, it's like uh, I, I love and I'm so happy in my jobs. Our kids are doing super well. They seem to really like us. Uh, a year ago, I was dealing with just kind of some, some chronic pain and health issues, and that's totally, like, cleared up. I've got no problem there now. We have really great friends in our life. Like, like just item by item, as he went over what I had shared previously, we're like, gosh, it's all happened. That was really striking. But you know what's even more striking? Is that while my... All this stuff on the outside had changed. I was still experiencing my life exactly the same way. Still really anxious, still really fearful, still worn out most of the time. My external circumstances changed, but my inner world didn't. Say that again, my external circumstances changed my inner world didn't. On the outside, in this brief little window of my life, things just really objectively are better. And I have failed to internalize that reality. So in our challenge time, one of my friends pointed this out. He said, Chris, you know, usually our internal world and our external world are aligned. And it can be kind of a chicken or egg sort of thing, right? To know which one is prescriptive. It's like, that's not true. Yours are out of sync right now. Your outside world, it's kind of like all coming up sunshine, and your inside world isn't. And there's an opportunity in that. There's an opportunity to actually get to look at what's happening inside of you, to lean into that, to ask questions about it, to explore it, and then try to find yourself into a more healthy place. You see, it's really easy for me, and maybe it's easy for you too, to to fall into the habit of thinking that if I could just get my world perfectly arranged, then all of my internal issues and problems would go away. And my friend Matt pointed and said, Chris, you're the living proof right now that that is not true. You need to explore what's going on in there. Because the truth is, I think I do, I find everybody has these, right? We, windows in our life, we're like, everything's really good right now. 
And I think I'm in one. Uh, in the, the show The Office, there was an episode where Andy Bernard says, I wish there was a way to know you were in the good old days before you've actually left them, right? <laughs> That's what I walked away from my trip thinking. It's like, oh my gosh, I think I'm in the good old days right now. These are some of the days that later in life I'm going to look back on and be like, oh, that was such a rich, good time, full of God's blessings. Except right now I'm missing it. Right now I'm still struggling with the same old things on the inside that I always have. Which brings us back to the book of Romans. So I read you Romans 12, 2 at the beginning. Here's a quick note about the Bible. Never read just one verse. And if somebody reads you just one verse in order to prove a point or make a point, your first thought should be, well, what else does it say? Now, especially if somebody gets up and starts at verse 2, your first thought's probably, well, what was in verse 1? Why'd you skip that? Well, I'm going to tell you. Here it comes. Ready? This is what it says, uh, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Living sacrifice, that's kind of weird language. We don't, you know, make a lot of living sacrifices these days. Um, There's a pastor named Eugene Peterson. He wrote a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. This is how he, he translates that verse. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, Place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. I love that, that language. Put your whole life before God as an offering. But it makes me start to think, what, what's, what counts in whole? Uh, there's a spiritual writer named Richard Foster. He wrote about this verse, that the tricky thing about living sacrifices is that they're always trying to climb down off the altar, Right? Nothing and nobody wants to be sacrificed. But some of the things that we most need to put on that altar live so deeply down inside of us that we may not even be aware of them. And those are the things that need to go there. So here is where putting everything before God has been really hard for me. There's a a uh, psychologist and author named Bill Plotkin, and he talks about um, what he calls loyal soldiers, right? And here's, here's essentially what a loyal soldier is. It's the idea when we're kids and we're learning to navigate the world around us, how to safely move in this world, we develop some strategies, habits, thoughts, you know, these, these patterns. We realize like, okay, the world's kind of scary. I don't really understand it. It's kind of chaotic. But if I do this, then things work out okay, right? So there are these things that we learn as kids that keep us safe. And um, those things tend to grow into an inner voice. And something that even when we're not kids anymore, and we do have substantially more control over our environment and our world, they continue to direct us. They continue to try to fight. They're loyal soldiers, right? They fight to try to keep us safe, even though they may have outlived their tour of duty. So here's an example from me. Uh, I am from the Midwest. And people in the Midwest are really nice. Like nicest people on the planet nice. Uh, how many of you are from the Midwest? Show of hands, Midwesterners. 
Guarantee you the people with their hands up right now are nicer than you if your hand isn't up. <laughs> Nicest people here. We are so nice in the Midwest, but there are certain things that can get in the way of your niceness, you know? Things like conflict or confrontation or minor differences in opinion or, I don't know, wanting to go to a different restaurant than someone else. And so in order to maintain our niceness, we just never do any of those other things. Like, like ever, like totally not allowed uh, because we're, we're so nice, right? Really, really, really nice. So even when you're mad, you don't act like it. You certainly don't tell anybody. Here's what you do. You swallow it. You just mm, get the mad down here and then you eat a casserole. Midwestern specialty, um, and it forms like a seal over the top of the mad, and then the Velveeta absorbs all the mad, and then it just wraps permanently around like your, your bones, or I don't know where Velveeta goes, but it's not food, and it's in there, so, but all the mad's in there forever, and then you never have to let it out, right? That's what Midwesterners are like, and so as a Midwestern kid growing up, that's the environment that I had to learn to survive in. I had to learn how to predict if somebody was upset who wasn't going to tell you. Not only that, you had to be able to identify they're mad, figure out why they're mad, fix it, all while we all, while we all pretend that none of this is going on. My loyal soldier grew up to help me get really good at that. I am fully fluent in size, minor eye rolls, and pursed lips, right? Like, like, that's as mad as anybody gets in the Midwest, right? And you better be able to read that because that's serious trouble. Uh, the people who rose their hand, you get me, right? Like, as a kid, I learned how to navigate in that world. My loyal soldiers taught me, this is how you stay safe. This is how you maintain the relationship. This is how you work in this kind of world. But there's a, there's a problem with it. And the problem is that I now live every day with the underlying assumption that everyone is upset. And specifically that they're upset with me. And I don't know why. I don't know how. But until proven otherwise, I start almost every interaction with a person assuming that there's tension. And then five minutes in, if you're smiling and laughing enough, then I can be like, oh, okay, we're okay. And then our conversation ends and I go to the next person and I start back over. This person's upset with me until proven otherwise. Which can I just tell you is a incredibly, incredibly anxiety-provoking way to live. When you feel like at every moment all of my relationships hang in the balance. And that's the undercurrent of my inner world. See, loyal soldiers, they... There's a downside. And they're not all bad. I mean, I, there are some superpowers associated with that. The ability to actually anticipate what people need, want, hope from you has served me very well in life, in relationships. But to start from the place of fearfulness and stress and anxiety about what is perceived and thought about me that you must then be constantly working to fix is a really hard way to live. And I've ended up with this sense that I've, no matter what, I've never done enough, right? I probably should have done more. 
and I hate to let people down. And so I say yes to everything until I end up so overwhelmed and stressed out and unable to keep up with all of the things I've committed myself to. And so then I have to start saying no's, but I can't say a no to you, so I'll say it to me. I do think that through this, I've remained a very present, a good dad, right? So it's, it's me. I take all the no's and end up never doing any of the things, or not never, that's an overstatement, but maybe not enough, doing the things that I need in order to be okay. My loyal soldier is the arch nemesis of contentment. And I'll bet some of you can relate to that. So over the years, a lot of prayer, a lot of journaling, a lot of reflection, and honestly, a really great therapist have helped me to understand that I need to discharge my loyal soldiers, to thank them for serving me well and for so long, and to let them know that you don't have to fight anymore. You're discharged from duty, and I can take it from here. See, in Romans, when Paul says, present your body as a living sacrifice, or as Eugene Peterson said, to take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. See, this loyal soldier is a part of me that I need to lay down on that altar. Because if I'm truly to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, if I'm truly to be transformed by the renewing of my mind so that I can know what God's good and perfect will for my life is, I have to be able to offer this part of me, the part that is buried down in there deep. Because right now, in so many ways, it makes me miserable. It steals the joy out of my life. But it's hard to do. How do you do that, right? You can't just like say it and be like, oh, you're off duty, sir, right? Like it doesn't just go away. We have to figure out, and there's, there's a lot of ways to do it, and you probably need all of them. Because when, when our brain sets up a pattern, a pathway in our brain that has learned, this is where we go, this is what we do, it is really, really challenging to say it. And so again, I turn back to the Bible, and I find help. So here's something the Bible says that I have found really helpful as I address this particular thing in me. Psalm chapter 111, verses 1 through 4 says this. Praise the Lord. I will thank the Lord with all my heart as I meet with his godly people. How amazing are the deeds of the Lord. All who delight in him should ponder them. Everything he does reveals his glory and majesty. His righteousness never fails. He causes us to remember his wonderful works. How gracious and merciful is our Lord. The Psalms are full of verses just like that. More broadly, the scripture is full of verses just like that. From beginning to end, as you read through the Bible, you find that the people of God have had this desperate, overwhelming need to sing out an expression of their gratitude to God for all that God has done. I love verse two. How amazing are the deeds of the Lord. All who delight in him should ponder them. How often do I stop to ponder 
the deeds of the Lord in my life. Verse 4 says, he causes us to remember his wonderful works, right? How often do I remember what God has done in my life, right? And so I've developed a practice based around this. I made a list and I wrote out the things in my life that I am most deeply grateful for. And it's become the most important part of my daily routine to actually pause pray and give thanks to God for these things. You want to know what's on my list? Well, you're going to find out. Item number one, my wife, Lindsay. She's right there. And is mad that I pointed. Yeah, yeah. Lindsay, I'm so grateful to be married to you. I am so grateful for the life that we get to live together. I'm so grateful for the mom you are to our kids, to the partner and friend you are to me. You are God's greatest gift to me. I am so grateful for you. Items number two and three on my list, my firstborn, Nora, and my second child, Quinn. And I just think about how incredibly lucky I am to get to be loved by those two little miracles. Those two little girls. You know, when I went on my trip, the day I left, Nora, she was eight, wrote a card that just said, welcome home, daddy. And she drew all over it. And then she said, P.S., don't ever, 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 ever go on a trip without me again, right? <laughs> and so when I got home, she gave it to me and she'd been sitting on it for four days waiting for it. There's nobody luckier to get to have these precious little angels who love me so deeply and so well. Next on my list, my parents. Today is the, this day exactly, November 14th, is the 15th year um, anniversary of my dad dying. And I wish he was still here. I wish he was still alive. But I am grateful that I live a life knowing I had parents who loved me so dang well. When I met, first met my now in-laws, after I got to know him, my mother-in-law said to me, um, I can tell you were a well-loved kid. And I'm so grateful. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of my mom. I'm proud of my dad. I'm proud of the people who never failed. Like, my kids roll their eyes at me so much because I tell them that I love them so often. They've had enough of this because that's what my parents did for me. I grew up in a world knowing no matter what, no matter what happens in this world unconditionally, my parents love me, think the world of me, and I'm grateful for them. Next on my list, those... Those four guys that I just showed you a picture of. To, to be 39 and have a friend that you've been friends with for 34 years feels like a real gift. All of those guys have been my friends for 20 plus years and they commit to get together, to share on the deepest level, to support one another, to pray for one another. I am so grateful to get to be a part of that group. Next on my list, I have a core group here at Ascent, a group of guys I've been meeting with for four years every Wednesday morning. They are my friends. They have become my family, my support here. I am so grateful for you guys. Nine years ago, I was able to donate my kidney to my wife. And every doctor and nurse that we met along the way addressed us as siblings because it is so exceptionally rare, miraculous, that a spouse would be a match. And because of being able to give that gift, it has 
allowed us a level of vitality and fullness in life. I am grateful to God for that miracle. Next on my list, Kurt and Christy, my mother and father-in-law who are sitting next to my wife right now. I love you guys. Thank you for loving me so much. I am so glad to be a part of your family. I am so glad that you call me son. I am so glad that you moved here from California and watch our kids for us. I am so, <laughs> I'm so grateful for you. Thank you. I'm grateful that in my life, I have a hope and a dream that I feel a purpose and a calling on my life that I have been able to step into, that I don't, I don't live my life not sure what I'm here for. I feel like I know and I've gotten to soar with God in my life. I am grateful for that. I am grateful that the God who put all the stars in the sky called my name when I was a lonely teenage kid and said, I want to be in a room. I want to be with you. I know you. I love you. I care about you. And so I did. And despite the fact that I still have these things inside me that I choose thoughts, actions, behaviors every day that, that hurt myself, that hurt others, that take me further, that despite all of that, that God loved me so much that Jesus came and said, I love you so much that I won't let anything ever take you away from me. And that he endured a cross on my behalf. And that God raised him to life. And in that same way, I am invited to step into that kind of new life, that kind of world. The best way I can describe what it is like for me when I pray through my gratitudes is I'm, I'm wearing contacts right now, um, but for a lot of my life, I've worn glasses, right? And sometimes when you're wearing glasses, you don't realize how dirty the lenses are until you take them off. You're like, oh my goodness. And you clean them and you put them back on and you see the world the way that it truly is. So often in my life, I am looking at the reality around me, the world that I live in through dirty lenses, but praying through my gratitudes, giving thanks, pondering the great deeds that God has done in my life, cleans the glasses and lets me see the world as it really is. It helps me to step to the altar and to lay down before God my offering. It renews my mind to remember that God has done great things in my life, to remember that I have more things to sing about than to fear to remember that God has pulled me up from the clay and has set me on solid ground, has set me on the rock, that God holds my heart now and forever. Would you all stand with us as we sing our final song?